Well, throughout church history, there's been a continual swing back and forth between truth and experience, intellect and emotion, the head and the heart. What would you answer? How would you answer this question? What matters more, knowing God or feeling God? What's more important? And since the beginning of the church, many have lined up under the truth side of the pendulum. What matters most is the truth and the intellectual pursuit of God. Others have lined up under the side of experience, feeling God, and, and knowing his presence in your life is the most important thing. Now, that pendulum continues to swing back and forth between those two ends today. Last time, it's been several weeks, but last time I gave you the example of two different types of churches. The first was the cold, dead, orthodox church. The church that has the truth, they're orthodox in doctrine, but they're lacking in any emotion. The people sit lifelessly through the worship service, their hearts disconnected from their heads. They didn't seem like they feel anything. And the result is that their supposed worship of God feels very disingenuous and just phony. And if that's orthodoxy, if that's the result, what good is it, many would say? It's for this reason that many churches have strongly reacted And they go in the opposite direction, so the pendulum swings the other way, often radically. This is especially the case today in our postmodern age. Our culture is postmodern, which means the objective truth doesn't really matter that much anymore. What matters is, is you, what you think is true, what you believe, what you want. You combine that worldview with a reaction against those cold, old, stale churches, and the result is very often emotion-driven churches or experience-driven churches. And that's a lot of what we have today. More and more churches, without admitting it, they're shunning the truth. God's word doesn't really matter that much. It takes a distant backseat. What really matters is experiencing God's presence. You've got to be moved by God and, and his spirit. And that's true. The church with all truth and no heart is wrong that the result will not be true worship. Jesus commended the church of Ephesus. They had a real handle on doctrine, but he admonished them because they had lost their first love. They had grown cold in their love for the Lord, and that's not going to result in a worship that's pleasing to him. But the flip side is also true. The church with all emotion and no truth is also wrong. This is just as unbiblical and will result in likewise false worship. Even pagans can be worked up into an emotional experience, but that doesn't mean they're really worshiping. You recall back in 1 Kings 18, we witnessed the prophets of Baal, and they're they're praying, they're dancing, they're raving about the altar to their god on Mount Carmel. They call on their god for an entire day straight. And talking about being emotionally worked up, they were having this ecstatic experience, but there wasn't an ounce of true worship in it because it was totally devoid of the truth. So emotionalism and experientialism, they don't add up to form true worship. And needless to say, this pendulum has been swinging back and forth for a long time. From orthodoxy to orthopraxy, which is to say, you know, truth to experience, knowing to feeling. We want to know, where does that pendulum belong? According to God, not according to man, but according to God, where does it belong? What is the right relationship between truth And our experience, what role should our emotions play in our worship? Any role, no role, should we shun our emotions and feelings or should we be all about our emotions and feelings? Where do these things 
fit in our worship of God? Anywhere? Today we aim to find out. Just to get you back up to speed, it's been a few weeks that we started this discussion last time. Normally on Sunday mornings, we're still making our way through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, but we hit pause on that for a little bit of time to study this issue of music worship in the church. And as as I've been telling you, these worship wars have been waging for almost 50 years now, where churches, more and more, they're, they're splitting and they're dividing over the issue of music in the church. It sounds crazy, but it's true, and we're no strangers to this anymore. No church is immune to conflict over these music issues. Thankfully, we've been largely spared from them, but nonetheless, we've set our goal the past few sermons to just go to God's word and and try and guide and direct our worship practices here according to the word. Well, last time from John chapter 4, we saw Jesus himself, he gave us God's own definition of true worship. A true worship according to God is, is in spirit and truth. Jesus said true worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And through a study of that text and its context, last time we found that that reference to spirit is a reference to your heart, your, your inner self. God wants heart-driven worship. He wants us to exalt him from within, not just going through the motions, but from your heart. But where do you get such a heart of worship? Well, that's where the truth comes in. God is a God of truth. He doesn't take kindly to error, to distortions of his character. He demands to be worshipped rightly, and that is according to the truth. You can't worship God unless you get God right and the gospel right. Even more so, the truth informs our hearts. Our hearts on their own, they're they're corrupt. We, on our own, we worship self, not God. But as the truth of God's word confronts us, so the Holy Spirit conforms us and changes us. He gives us hearts of worship. Like coal to a fire... So the truth instills in us a heart of worship. It becomes the basis for our worship. Well, last time we ended with a cliffhanger. True worship, according to Jesus, it's founded on the truth, and it comes from the heart. So we call that you know, truth-informed, heart-driven worship. But what's the outcome of such worship? Yes, worship must come from the heart, but does it end in the heart? What about your feelings? What about your emotions? Are those like legitimate results of a heart worship or not? How do these relate to a heart of worship? And what about your personal experience? Should you have any experience when you're worshiping God or not? Do we shun these things? Do we embrace them? Do emotion and experience belong in our worship of God? It's kind of where we ended last time. Today we're going to pick it up and, and answer that question. From our previous times together, we've gained a fundamental understanding of true worship. And now we want to build on that by clarifying this role between emotion and experience and and worship. This really is an important clarification to make because, as we noted, that pendulum, it's all over the place. You've got churches that are all emotion and that's all they care about. You have churches that have no emotion experience, which is very cold. And we just want to get it right according to God, according to his word. And we'll conform ourselves to that. And we need to find out. So more specifically, here's where we're going with this today. I want to, from Scripture, help you evaluate the role emotions and experiences should play in our worship. And to do so, I want to biblically display that, number one, emotions and experience are not the beginning of worship. Number two, emotions and experience are not the end of true worship. 
But that number three, emotions and experience, have an important part to play in true worship. And I'll repeat that as we go. But that's, that's where we're headed today. That's what we're up to. That's our goal for this morning. So let's start with this. And it's number one. Emotions and experience are not the beginning of true worship. They're not the beginning of true worship. Now, I'll explain what I mean here. In other words, they're not the basis of our worship of God. This is not where true worship comes from. This isn't the starting point. This isn't the guide. Worship does not originate from your emotions or your personal experience. Some would think and practice otherwise. Many would say, I know I'm worshiping because I feel it. I have that feeling. I'm experiencing God's spirit. How could that not be worship if what I'm feeling is like this? Many would say the same thing regarding their salvation. I know I'm saved because I just I feel God's presence in my life. I've got that feeling, and it's got to be true. And what is the basis of their salvation or their worship? It's just, it's just a feeling or, or their personal experience. But that's wrong. I'm not saying such people are necessarily unsaved. I'm just saying that emotion and experience, they're not legitimate foundations for your salvation or your worship. Why not? Well, if you, if you can't answer that question, this shows you have a, a misunderstanding or an underestimation of your own fallen condition. Where do our emotions come from and what's the source of our feelings? It's our heart, our spirit, our inner self. All synonyms in the Bible just are that inner man. What's the problem with that? Well, we have fallen, corrupt, deceitful hearts. Jeremiah 17:9 The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it Matthew 15:19 Jesus said for out of out of the heart come evil thoughts murders adulterers adulteries fornications thefts false witness slanders these are the things which defile the man it comes from the heart and the good news is that by faith in Christ through salvation God can change you he can start changing your heart He gives you his spirit to guide and direct your heart. But even after salvation, we still possess a corrupt inner nature, the flesh, as the Bible would often call it. Therefore, should you trust your heart and your feelings just on their own? Should you trust your own heart and feelings? No, that's the last thing you should do. Contrary to all the, the Star Wars hype going around right now, the last thing you should do is let go and trust your feelings. Proverbs 28:26 says, "He who trusts in his own heart is a fool." He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs 28:26. Proverbs 14:12, "There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death." See, because of your fallen natures, you need to know that your feelings will betray you. Your own heart will easily lead you into sin. Therefore, you would be foolish, like Proverbs says, Just to trust whatever you feel. Trust whatever your heart tells you. And accordingly, that's why we don't receive God's guidance through our feelings. God never tells us, just let go and feel his will in your heart. That's nonsense. God knows how easily our hearts can be misled and manipulated. Your emotions will lie to you. Just think, do people tend to make the best decisions or the worst decisions when they're emotionally charged up? They make the worst decisions of their lives. Just picture this Christian guy. He's really into this girl. 
He's in love with her. He wants to marry her, but she's not a Christian. The the word is absolutely clear. Don't marry her. Don't be unequally yoked. Find a, a godly believing spouse. But in his heart, his feelings tell him otherwise. He said, this is good. This is right. This is love. How can love ever be wrong? And every feeling is screaming against the word. And that's what David felt when he was staring at Bathsheba. Every emotion and feeling in his heart was telling him, this is, this is good. This is okay. There's nothing wrong with this. This is love. I'm the king. I should have this. How can this be wrong? Go, just go take her. But do you see how his emotions, his feelings, betrayed him, lied to him, and led him into serious sin? Because he listened to his heart instead of speaking to his heart. Your emotions, your feelings can and will do the same thing if you let them guide you. The same goes for personal experience. Many are driven by their experiences. They evaluate reality based on their personal experience. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you have a relationship with God? Many will say just because I feel it. I sense God's presence in my life. I had, an, I had this experience where I, I encountered God. Or you ask someone, how do you know that you're, you're truly worshiping? Again, because I experienced it. You know, when the music is playing just right, I get that warm feeling inside. It just overwhelms me. The, the hair stands up on the back of my neck. I get this euphoria. And they think that experience, it has to be worship, right? That must be true worship. How else do you explain such an experience? And in this way, many people, they make their own experience the basis, the starting point, the beginning of their worship. But again, what's the problem with this? There's many. One, what happens when people have contradicting experiences or encounters with God? What about the Muslim who has the same experience, that deep warmth, that connection with God? that peace, would you say they're truly worshiping? Now, they feel like they are. Their experience tells them the exact same thing. So who are you to say they're wrong? Who are you to say your experience is valid and their experience is not? You can't if experience is your source of truth. If it's your basis, you can't say that they're wrong. Again, we're not suggesting you should throw away all emotion and discount all experience. No, we're also not, not saying that all emotions and experiences are automatically invalid. Not what we're saying. But we are saying you can't trust them on their own. You don't let them be your guide, your starting point for evaluating worship. Another huge problem with letting emotional experiences be your guide is you don't automatically know where they come from. So many assume that emotional excitement equals spirituality. You have to evaluate, where are your emotions coming from? Where, where did that experience come from? Could it be God and his spirit? It, it sure could. But it, it could also be Satan and demons. It could be your own sinful flesh. It could be heartburn or food poisoning. <laughs> really, it, it could be, you have to evaluate. You can't assume Good feelings equals God's spirit at work. You get that? You can't assume good feelings equals God's spirit at work. David's good, adulterous feelings didn't come from the spirit. It came from his flesh. Joseph Smith's angelic visions didn't come from God. It came from the devil. Just because you walk into a building called a church, you see a bunch of people 
raising their hands, singing loudly, that doesn't necessarily mean they're truly worshiping. It might, it might not. You have to evaluate the externals, because remember, we're not about the externals. And what if you found out that church, they denied Jesus as God? Would you still think the Spirit is moving in that place? No. Emotions and experiences, they can be wrong, they can be misleading. From within or without, you, you can be easily deceived or manipulated. You don't automatically know where your experience is coming from, therefore you must watch out. You can't trust them on their own. They're not reliable guides for worship. We're not saying throw them all away. Absolutely not. But we are saying, first, they do not form the basis of true worship. Number one, emotions and experience are not the beginning of true worship. Now, just to throw in here, we should say, what is the beginning of true worship? We kind of covered it last time, but the answer is is the truth, which is found in God's word. Your emotions and experiences, they can be wrong. So you can't just follow them. But God's word is not wrong. It can never be wrong. It is your guide for all things, including worship. If you're fast, you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians 1, Paul was confronting the Galatian churches because some of them, they were already deserting the true gospel for another. And why? He says in verse 7, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, they were being deceived and manipulated. So he's writing to tell them, you have to, you have to be cautious. You have to evaluate the things you're hearing and seeing. And you evaluate them based on what? Not your personal experience, but God's word, the truth. And so he says to them in verse 8, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. You just think about that. Talk about an experience. You are visited by an angel, like a real angel. You encounter a heavenly being. That would be breathtaking. And you would, you would just assume anything this being says to me must be the truth, right? I mean, this is like a crazy experience. It's got to be true. But Paul says, no, don't just listen to them. If even an angel were to speak to you contrary to the truth of God's word, just throw it out. Totally discount the entire experience. Maybe you were visited by an angel. Maybe that's true. But it certainly wasn't an angel of the Lord. But do you see how personal experience takes a distant backseat to the word, to, to the truth itself, the priority of God's word? There's no comparison. You see the same thing in Second Peter 1. Again, if you're fast, you can follow along. Peter was relating his own personal experience of witnessing the transfiguration. That was hands down the most staggering personal experience any human has ever had. Ever. I mean, he, he saw Christ's glory unleashed while he was still alive. Peter saw this with his own eyes. He heard this with his own ears. And he testifies in 2 Peter 1. But shockingly, Peter himself, he subjects his own experience to God's word. Even though this was a true spiritual experience, To Peter, his experience was secondary to what? To the word. And so he says in verse 19, after talking about his experience of the transfiguration, he says, but we have the more sure prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. 
It's basically saying, you know, we, we don't actually need experiences. We have something better. We have something complete, something that can't be wrong, something that will never lead you astray, and that is God's word. It's sufficient for all life and godliness, so you don't need anything else. You don't need a, a visitor from an angel. You, you have the word. It's complete. What else do you need? And that word, it doesn't come from men, but from God. So he says in verse 20, or 21 rather, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So for Peter, the word was more sure than his own experience. He knew experiences can can be wrong. His wasn't. His was real. But he knows your feelings can betray you, so his advice, his urge to us, don't don't trust them on their own. That that's the point. What can you trust? What will never lead you astray? What is your guide for salvation and for worship? It, it's just the word, the truth. That's the starting point. The truth of God is the only reliable guide for worship that pleases him. You won't get close to true worship if you're just basing it all on your feelings and your experiences. So, number one, emotions and experience, they're not the beginning of true worship. They're not our guide. They're also not our goal. Leads to number two. Emotions and experience are not the end of true worship. They're not the beginning. They're not the starting place. They're not the end. They're not our goal. Again, I'll explain as we go on. But but first, did you know there was a time when God totally rejected Israel's worship? There was a time when God said he hated their worship. Did you know that? I'll read for you Amos 5, verses 21 through 24. God's speaking to the nation. He says, I hate and I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What's going on here? Israel, the nation, they were doing all the right things at the time. They were having all the right experiences of worship. They were gathering together. They were offering their sacrifices. They were singing praise songs to God. I mean, that's the right experience of worship, right? They were doing the right things. So why does God say he hates it all and he rejects it all? Well, the answer is that they were only doing these things when they were together. Only on Sabbath did they exalt God. But the rest of the week... They lived in total sin and immorality. And hence, whatever corporate worship experience they had was vain before God. They failed, they failed to realize that before God, worship, it doesn't just mean singing him a couple of songs once a week. That's not worship to God. Worship is not just giving him a token offering, putting your little money in the plate, so that make God happy, then you can go back to living your life however you want the rest of the week. That doesn't count as worship. To God, worship, it's about offering up you. You're the offering. Your entire life is the offering of praise to God. He wants all of you. He doesn't just want your singing once a week. He doesn't just want your money once a week. He wants your entire life. And if he doesn't get it, you're not worshiping. 
Romans 12.1, you know the verse. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And notice the key word there was holy. True worshipers are those who offer up their entire lives to God. You just you live for God and according to his ways. And that includes a pursuit of holiness and Christ-likeness all the time. If God is not the center of your life, though, if you're, if you're just living for self, if you're living in sin, without, without any regard for God and his ways, without any repentance, you're just living like the world, then you can sing as many songs as you want on Sunday. It's not worship, and God still hates it. It's hypocrisy. You can get as emotional as you want during that song. God rejects it as worship altogether. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, because a lot of the same false worship is happening today. And where is it coming from? Well, it's mostly coming from churches that have come to associate emotion and experience as the end of worship, meaning it's their goal. It's what they're after. That's how they define, that's how they evaluate worship. To them, you're not worshiping God unless you have an emotional high. The buzzword for this these days is authentic. All these churches, they advertise, and we have authentic worship, which is another way of saying we have emotion-driven worship. And we are not trying to villainize emotion and experience. We'll, We'll still get to that shortly, but the point here is emotion and experience, they're not the end of worship. When you make it your goal, like that's what you're after, not only is that the wrong goal, but you'll quickly find your, your false worshipers. Here's the problem. When you make the end goal of church giving people some experience, the focus shifts from God to man. You start to design and plan your corporate gatherings around giving people an experience. That's how all these churches have become either you know total rock concerts or variety shows. The driving question is not, how do we worship a holy God? But the driving question is, how do we bring a bunch of people in, make them feel really good, give them an experience? Pragmatism rules the church, not God's word. Just, you know, whatever gets them in the door, whatever makes them feel good, whatever keeps them happy, that must be good. That must be right. Let's just do that. Whatever works, let's just do that. Make the music louder and longer because people love concerts. It's true. Make the preaching shorter and shallower because people don't like long sermons. And they definitely don't want sermons that challenge them because then you might risk making them feel uncomfortable. And we can't have that. You know, We can't talk about sin and holiness. We, we don't want to turn people away. Even the complete gospel message itself is, is too offensive. You know, We can't share that bad news side, you know, like the judgment and hell. We, gotta, like, we can't have that. And so you, just what happens is the truth takes a major backseat. It just happens. This should already sound like a problem, though, because we've already established that true worship always comes in response to the truth. It's never detached from the truth. So if a church, one way or another, drops the the preaching of the whole counsel of God's word, what will happen to their worship? It will become shallow at best or false at worst. Even worse... When the truth is dropped and the gospel is never preached, not only do you risk false worship, you risk false salvation. 
when you have an entertainment or an experience-oriented, driven church, they often attract non-believers because it's just like the world. But if the gospel is never preached, how will they ever get saved? The problem is that many of them, they're, they're convinced, though, that they have a relationship with God because they had this emotional experience at church. And they say, well, that I must be. I must know God now. Have this experience. But gospel's never preached. They don't know the gospel. They're not born again. And that's how you get all these hypocritical Christians. That's how America, that it's like, what, 80% people claim to be Christians? This is pretty much how. They're great churchgoers. They love to worship on Sunday mornings. But they live like total unbelievers the rest of the week. God is totally absent from their lives. And they're really no different from the Jews in the Old Testament. God still rejects and hates their worship. It's it's hypocrisy. And so to boil it down, emotion and experience, they're not the end of worship. And when you make them the end, worship quickly becomes man-centered and very often false. And it's a real problem. Another related problem with making emotion and experience the end of our worship is that it really breeds a selfish spirit in the church. When church is designed around the goal of giving people an experience, like I said earlier, the focus, it shifts from God to man. What matters, it's not so much what God says and wants, it's what, what the people, what they want. That's what matters. Churches start to cater to the desires and the preferences, not, not of God, but, but of the people. We design church around what the people want. But this leads many to approach church selfishly. Church becomes like a a self-improvement club. You attend your club, you pay your member dues, and you go because you like what you get. You get something out of it. You get an experience. You like the entertainment value. It's a fun time. Church is fulfilling. It makes you feel good about yourself. But in this spirit, people get very critical They treat the pastor or the musicians like actors, and they're the audience. They're the critics, and they are very critical. They show up with their list of demands and wishes, and if they don't get what they want, they're going to leave. They're going to go elsewhere. They better get the style of music they want, the volume, the length, the instruments. They have to get what they want. Otherwise, they will leave or cause trouble. They're paying for their experience. They better get their experience out of it. Let me give you just a little test to see if you've ever just fallen into this trap. You ever left church and you said, or even just thought to yourself, you know, I don't think I really got anything out of church this morning. You ever thought that? Just think about that phrase. I I, I don't really get anything out of church this morning. You leave disappointed because the music wasn't to your taste or the sermon wasn't to your taste and you grumble, you complain, you just, I didn't get anything out of it. Do you see the problem with such an approach and attitude toward church and worship? You see how that just reveals a very selfish, self-centered heart. It's just about you. Church and worship are about you, your tastes, your desires. And if you don't get what you want, you can't worship. That's a problem. But such a hard attitude is completely antithetical to everything we have studied in the past about a true heart of worship. Remember what God wants. He wants your heart. A heart given to him, not yourself. Church is not about what you get out of it. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's not a club you join to get some custom-tailored experience. And our worship should be anything but man-centered. And we have to be careful. America is the most 
entertainment-saturated, self-loving culture ever. And people still want more. We have so much, but we still want more. And you have to be aware of bringing such a culture into the church. Worship is not about you. It's about God. It's not about what you get out of it. It's about what you give to God. Our corporate worship time is designed by God to bring him glory and honor. It's not meant to entertain. Accordingly, there should be zero entertainment value to our worship. It's not a show. You are not spectators. You are participants. You're not the audience. You're the actors. God is the audience, and he's watching you to see how you perform. Will you give him the praise and the glory that he desires or not? Experience and emotion are not the end goal of worship. Again, we'll add here what is. Well, hopefully it's evident. It's God and his glory. We exist to magnify his name. Like they sing in, in heaven, Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Hebrews 13.15 it says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. In worship, God must be the focus, not ourselves. He's to be magnified, not ourselves. His desires are to be met, not our own. But if you come to a church and you worship because you're after fulfillment, you're after excitement, you're after that emotional high, You're often going to be disappointed, and God will not be pleased by your so-called self-driven worship. In reality, it becomes just another way of worshiping self all too often. Now, I do want to be clear. God, in his mercy, he actually does give us great blessing and personal fulfillment when we do worship him. That's actually true. When you worship God from the heart, you should be spiritually fulfilled, but... That's a byproduct. That's not what we're after. That's just God's grace and mercy and blessing to to shower us with the greatness of who he is. But that's not why we come. That's not what drives us. Therefore, we should not design our worship toward that end. We should purpose all that we do toward the end of exalting God. Well, so far we've established that emotion experience is not the beginning of true worship. Not our starting point. Starting point has to be the truth of God and His Word. Also, emotion experience are not the end of worship. They're not our goal, what we're after. Instead, that's God and His glory. Worship is about pleasing God, not self. And God is pleased when our entire lives are given over to Him. We glorify God, we bear fruit every day, not just Sunday, but we just we live for Him. That's when our worship becomes meaningful. But now let's get into it. With all this. We're not shunning emotion and experience. Hopefully you haven't misunderstood. It's just that they need to be put in their proper place. What is the proper place of our emotions and our personal experience in this whole idea of worship? Well, it's actually kind of right in the middle. And I'll explain with this. Number three, finally, emotions and experience have an important part to play in true worship. Obviously, I'll tell you what that means. They're not the beginning. They're not the end. But... Emotions and experience, they have an important part to play in true worship. 
All right, so hopefully you, you get by now our worship doesn't start with emotions. But that doesn't mean emotions and our experience have no place. They have a place. What is the place? Well, they come, they're supposed to come, in response to the truth. Worship all starts with the truth. God's word informs us, reminds us who God is, what he has done. And that truth, if you're a born-again, spirit-filled believer, when you hear the truth, it should produce in you a heart of worship. Your heart just just bubbles up, becomes alive. You, you, You feel. You respond. Your heart responds to the truth. If you're alive, your heart responds to the truth. You want to exalt him. You want to live for him. You want to sing about him. And a great byproduct of truth-informed, heart-driven worship will be and should be emotion and experience. There is an appropriate emotional response you should have to heart worship, to real heart worship. Like what? Well, let me give you some examples to help flesh this out. How about love? 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. What's the source of our love? God and his love. And pretend you sit through a sermon of God and his love for you, how he sent his son to die for you. If you know him, that should move you to feel love. In fact, we, I think we could easily say, if you don't feel a sense of love for God in response to that, something's wrong with you. That almost calls into question whether you know God's love. And that should move your heart to love. How about peace? Should you feel and experience peace as a Christian and peace when you're worshiping? Of course. Why? Not because the music is soft and smooth and soothing. That's that's not why. You should experience peace because you know you've been justified by faith before God. Therefore, we have peace. Romans 5.1. Your peace comes from that truth, that that knowledge that you know what he's done for you. You have this peace. And you should experience that peace in life and worship. How about sorrow and hatred? Should these emotions ever be part of worship? Actually, yes, believe it or not. You would never find this in in an experience-driven church because those emotions are seen as downers. And in a way they are, but biblically, such emotions, they're legitimate responses to God's word when it exposes our sin. But that only produces holiness, which is what God wants. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. When God's word exposes the sin in your life, you should feel sorrow over that sin, hatred for that sin. You should have those feelings. Again, if you don't, Something's wrong with you. We should be grieving over our sin against a a holy, perfect God. But that just produces holiness, which is what God wants. And and thankfully, though, whatever, whatever sorrow we do have, it's true, it is a downer, but it's quickly replaced by what? By joy, which just overwhelms it because of, again, who God is, what he's done for us. We know that God's grace is greater than our sins, so we can still rejoice. And joy. I mean, should you have joy? Should you feel joy? Should you experience joy when you're worshiping? You had better, right? Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. You're commanded. As believers, you should possess this lasting, excited, happy disposition. 
in life. Why? Not because you have a great tune on. What makes you happy? Because salvation is here. Christ has come. You have total forgiveness in him. You have eternal life. Just rejoice. I mean, if that doesn't put a smile on your face, do you do you know him? Do you, do you know that? Have you received that? You're meant to feel that joy. And it's a meaningful joy when it's based on the truth. We don't need to manipulate emotions and use lights and loud music and get adrenaline pumping to make people feel this artificial joy. We don't need that. We just need the truth. The truth is enough to produce a meaningful joy in true believers. And that joy will last even when the music ends. When the whole Sunday morning experience is over, that truth will carry you through your life and you'll still have that joy. Hopefully you're getting the picture. Yes, you should be moved in worship. An emotional experience should be involved. The key difference, though, between emotion and emotionalism is the driving force. Emotionalism, which we reject, is just a surface reaction to to stimuli. Music, lights, smells, an atmosphere. And, you know, by means of the flesh, we can produce all the same emotions in in an unbeliever. Yeah, we can make them happy. We can make them sad. We can can totally manipulate their emotions. It's, It's easy. But if it's detached from the truth, it will not result in worship. That's not worship to God. It's just emotion. But you have to ask yourself, what, what is driving that emotion you feel? Which, which can be good. Is it simply the beat of the music? Or is it the God that you're singing about? Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What's the driving force? It's the word of Christ which richly dwells within you that leads to that thankfulness. And I just want to sing. I want to sing now because I'm thankful for what he's done for me. So where do emotions and experiences, where do they fit into our worship? They're not the starting point, but they come in response to that starting point. They come in response to the truth. The truth that impacts our hearts, fills our hearts, changes our hearts. But that's not all. One last point. Where do do they end, though? What's the result of these emotions? So we should have them. They should come in response to the truth. Toward what end? We said earlier, they're not the end. So that emotion you have, that feeling, that's not the end. Rather, they're means to another end. Like I said, they fit in the middle. They're means to another end. And what's the end? It's bearing fruit. Bearing spiritual fruit for God. The emotional response we have to God's word, it's meant to produce in us the spiritual fruit of holy living before God, which is worship. That is worship. That's what God wants. That's the end of our worship. And that's how you should evaluate your worship practices. Where does your Sunday morning worship end? Do you leave with just a good feeling? Or do you leave with a good feeling that leads to spiritual fruit? That's worship. That's a complete worship. So again, going back to some examples, take love. You listen to that sermon on God's love. You feel love for God. That's appropriate. That you, you better. But where does that go? Well, the result of that love should be the fruit of obedience. That's what the Bible says. That's a biblical precedent. 1 John 5, 3 says, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. 
you are meant, as you are overwhelmed with God's love, and you love him in return, to just to live for him, to obey. The fruit of that love is obedience. Or go back to sorrow. As, God wor- as God's word convicts you and corrects you of your sin, it should produce some of these negative emotions, grieving over sin, sorrow over sin. But that sorrow, you're not meant to stay down in that sorrow. It's meant, that feeling is meant to produce in you the fruit of repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. We have the answer to our sorrow if you have the right fruit, the right result. And that, that comes to joy. You know, what about joy? What's the end goal of our joy? It's not just personal happiness, although that's nice, but and when you know the Lord and you're reminded of his great gift of salvation, you should feel overwhelmed with joy, and that should lead to many fruit. One of them, for example, is giving. We see that from the Philippian church in the Bible. They were so overwhelmed by God's gift of salvation that he would save them. They just had this joy. We know that Philippian church, they had joy. Talked about yesterday. And because of that joy, though, they just they couldn't help but give to God's work of the gospel. They just they were compelled to give. We're just we're so joyful because of what God has done for us. We just we want to give. They were dirt poor. Yet Paul says about them in Second Corinthians eight two, they still overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They had been given so much. The result was joy, and they just they they that resulted in the fruit of giving. Last example, take hope. You're reminded of all the promises of God in his word. That reminder should lead you to experience hope in life. Should it not? Should you experience hope? Should you feel hopeful? You should. As you study the promises, you start with the truth, you get the promises of God, you believe them, you will feel and experience hope. Where does that hope lead? You don't just doesn't just stop there. That hope should lead you to bear the fruit of patience and perseverance in the faith. The experience of hope should drive you to press on in the faith. Romans 8.25 But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. The list goes on. But hopefully now you can see the proper place of emotion and experience in our worship. They actually have an important part to play. Worship should not be devoid of emotion and experience. That cold, dead, orthodox church is wrong. Yeah, they have the truth, like the Church of Ephesus, praise God for that, but there's a massive disconnect, that one foot between the head and the heart. Something's wrong there. It should be connecting, and if it's not, something's wrong with with that church or that person. God created us to have emotions, and if we are to worship him with our whole being, That will include our emotions. And furthermore, if God is real, we expect to have some experience when we are encountering him, knowing him, worshiping him. But all things in their proper place. All things in their proper place. Emotion and experience must not be taken as the beginning of our worship or the end. They're not our guide. They're not our goal. But they fit in the middle. They legitimately come in response to the truth, and they should result in bearing spiritual fruit for God. Hang on to that, our emotion, our experience. They come 
in response to the truth, and they lead to bearing fruit for God. That is a, a holistic worship with your whole being that pleases God. We want to worship God with our entire being. That's what he demands, including our emotion, but all things in their proper place. Well, as a closing thought here, speaking of worshiping God with all of our being, that's what we want to do. We're finally ready to tackle, though, what that looks like in our expression. There's still a few questions left. We've been studying this whole issue of worship, worship wars, and we're now we have one message left to go next week. A few questions left to answer. Okay, we want to worship God with our whole being. So we know with our voices, we're going to sing. But what about with our hands? I mean, can we clap? Can we raise our hands, or is that like still taboo? Is that wrong? With our feet, I mean, should we dance? Is that appropriate? Is that inappropriate? What 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 are appropriate expressions of this worship that we talked about today? This holistic, heart-driven worship. What are appropriate expressions? What instruments are appropriate musical expressions for worshiping this God? These are our final considerations that we've been building up to. And once again, you have to come back next week if you want to hear about them. For now, let's pray. Well, Lord, we we thank you for this time in your word, studying really a little bit about ourselves, about humans, how you have made us, how you have designed us. You made us in your image. You, You feel, you have love, you have hate. You create us to have the same. We are emotional beings. Experience, we, we have experiences. These are not always wrong in and of themselves, but all things in their proper place, Lord. We, we want to get you right. We want to get the worship of you right. And for this, we need to get the role of our emotion and experience right, Lord. It, the primary thing is the truth. We, we need to know you, who you are, what you have done, what you have said to us. That is above all. And as the truth fills us and informs us, it creates hearts of worship we're overwhelmed for those who know you, know your son. We're impacted by the truth and that we just want to sing. We want to worship. And as the feelings come over us, which should, we pray that it, though it doesn't stop there, but that it bears fruit. We want to live our entire lives for you. We don't want to be those who sing a bunch of songs on Sunday and then go just live for self the rest of the week. But may we leave bearing fruit as we're confronted by joy and peace. May we just bear the fruit that pleases you, that that gives you entire lives of worship. That's our desire. Keep us on the straight and narrow in this regard, Lord, all things in their proper place. But, But bless us now. We want to now sing to you, may it be for the right reasons. We have hearts that love you, the God who saved us, created us, and saved us. Now we just want to sing because of that love. We do so now. In your name we pray. Amen.